Amen. You may be seated. Turn with me in your Bibles to Titus chapter 1, starting in verse 5 will be our text. We will focus on verses 5 through 9, but we will carry the content all the way through chapter 2, verse 1 of Paul's letter to Titus. As I said to open the service, this is a special day in the life of our church, not a uh, everyday occurrence that we get to acknowledge the Lord's hand in raising up a man for pastoral ministry and eldership in a local congregation. We have a great privilege before us, and yes, certainly a responsibility as we go through this text this morning in the ordination service that will follow. We pick up with Paul writing to Titus. Titus is a man that was left behind on the island of Crete. And in verse 5, we pick up where Paul is giving Titus some specific instructions. Read with me, verses 5 through 9. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination, for an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. It's a heavy charge that Paul has given to Titus. He gives him two specific charges, a, a general charge to put what remained into order in these churches that Paul established on the island of Crete. What did this involve? Last week, we talked about that passage. We said that the contents of the rest of the letter reveal that the churches on this island of Crete had prevalent theological and moral problems, failures. And this came from the culture into the churches. It wasn't just the culture that Paul was warning Titus about. He's saying there needed to be order established in the churches. The culture was penetrating the life and the heart of the church. And so Paul exhorts Titus, in essence, to put theology and practice in order in the churches of Crete. And his point was, as we made last week, right doctrine produces right practice. Right theology establishes right morals. And that's Paul's general charge to Titus. And then he gives him a specific charge. After establishing order, he is to appoint elders in every town, in every church. So Paul says, put into order and appoint elders. Order, once it's established, needs to be kept. Order needs to be adjusted, <laughs> enhanced. Order needs to be guarded. And it's done so by God's instrument, of elders, pastors, shepherds of his flock. By the grace of God, today we find our congregation here at Rocky Point Baptist Church to be in a good state. We are a church in order. That is not a boast. That is a statement that gives glory to God, for he has been faithful to us in helping us to establish biblical order in the church. It's not a boast because we have much room for improvement. and We will always be establishing and reforming the order that God has blessed us with until Christ comes again. We are a healthy church looking to grow in our health and faithfulness to Christ. And today we will fulfill Paul's second charge to Titus. We will appoint a man to eldership and to join in the oversight and the guarding of the order that God has established amongst us. We will not do so by hiring an employee. 
You're not appointing a lawyer. You're not submitting to a dictator. We are receiving a shepherd and acknowledging the raising up of a shepherd that Jesus Christ has equipped and fitted for this post in this church. More than that, yes, a shepherd, more than that, the text says that we are appointing a steward. Verse 7, an overseer is God's steward. This is God's church. More specifically, this is the bride of Christ, Jesus Christ's church. And so an elder is a steward of something that does not belong to him. And we're acknowledging this morning that the Lord has provided a steward to care for his flock. He's entrusted much to a man to join other men to be stewards as a plurality of elders in shepherding this flock that God has been so gracious to bring into order. As an elder is a steward of God's elect, that elder must be in order like the church is in order. For a man cannot guard and keep and enhance order in a church if his life is not in order. And so God, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, has led Paul to write to Titus and to us instructions that stand the course of time. For 2,000 years, these instructions for church leadership in faithful churches have been followed and obeyed and submitted to. To have a church in order, you must have strong leaders who themselves are in order. Proverbs 29, 18, where there is no prophetic vision, the people cast off restraint. But blessed is he who keeps the law. There it is right there. Blessed is the man whose life is in order in keeping the law. So as we this morning work through these qualifications for eldership, and as we biblically define the qualifications of a man who is in order so that he can lead a church that is in order, we need to keep in mind a couple of things very, very first and foremost. Number one, we need to understand that the list that we're going to work through is not an exhaustive list of everything that an elder is to be about. These are minimums, non-negotiables for sure, but these are minimums, and there are other things that must be found in a man's life. In ministry. Paul's focus, secondly, is not what a man in eldership does. We do not have a job description here saying an elder should do this and should do this and should do this. No, we have here a list of character qualities and one task in verse 9. And so we learn from this passage as well as the complementary passage in 1 Timothy 3 that the role of eldership is a character role, not a job description. And character is king in the shepherd and in the steward of God's flock and church. We must be mindful also that these qualifications are present tense in nature. They do not apply to sins prior to becoming a Christian. No man has been able to fulfill these before believing in Jesus Christ, certainly. And every man thereafter has to repent when he's out of line on some of these qualifications. And so this does not apply to the man's whole life, but it's present tense in who he is today as we acknowledge God's hand upon him for ministry. If that were not the case, Paul himself could not be, have been an apostle of Jesus Christ and he could not have been qualified to write to Timothy to establish order in churches, nor could he even be used by God to pen 13 letters in our scripture. For you see, Paul even says that he was the chief, the foremost of sinners. So we are not looking for a perfect man when we ordain one into eldership. But we are looking for, listen to me, a repentant man. Not a perfect man, but a repentant man. Another thing that we need to keep in mind this morning is that these qualifications that we are going to work through are not for elders only. They are expected by God of 
all believers. Perhaps with the exception of the able to teach, not all are able to teach as the biblical mandate is, but all of these character qualities that are assigned to a a man for the office of elder are to be held and embraced and practiced by all believers and all followers of Jesus Christ. Hebrews 13, 7 says, Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. So imitation means we all collectively as a congregation are to follow the lead of elders who are faithful to these and imitate them and embrace these and embody these in our own lives. So it's important for us to understand this morning that elders do not have a higher standard of living, a higher standard of character than any other Christian. That is not the case. It is the case, however, though, that elders have a greater accountability to God for how they embody these qualifications amongst God's elect. Hebrews 13, 17, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls, and here it is, as those who will have to give an account. That's unique to elders. Accountability will be had before the living God on the day that we're all anticipating to come. So with that, let's jump into these qualifications and do some some, uh, application of what these mean for this man that we acknowledge today as God's choice for elder in our church and also what they might mean for us as a congregation. Paul says that there is a very important trait about this man that must be prevalent throughout all of these qualifications in verse 6 he talks about anyone who is above reproach in verse 7 he says an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach above reproach what is this this is an opening statement that Paul gives to Titus that sets the context for all the qualifications that are going to follow They all fall under the banner of above reproach. So while we're not looking for a perfect man, we are looking for a man where there are no loopholes in his character. That's what it means to be above reproach. There's no loopholes in his character. While not perfect, there are no established patterns or beachheads of sin in his life that he will not repent of. While he is not perfect, he is continually striving to live a hypocrisy-free life, privately and publicly. And if a legitimate accusation can be brought against him, a qualified elder being above reproach is quick to confess of his sins and repent of his sins and seek reconciliation with those that he has wronged. That's what we're looking for when we say we need a man who is above reproach. And according to this passage, a pastor must be above reproach in three categories of character. There's three clusters or categories in these four verses that a man must be above reproach. The first, he is that he must be above reproach in his family. The second, he must be above reproach in his character. And third, he must be above reproach in his doctrine. Let's look at each of these quickly. First of all, above reproach in his family. It's very interesting that God inspires Paul to start with the man's home. I do think that that means it's a place that's a precedence, that's a precedence, primary precedence in this man's life. He says the man must be a husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. So we have two categories within this grouping. First of all, he speaks to the man's wife. Now, this does not exclude single men from the office of elder. But what we have here is if there is a man who is married, we need to understand what his marriage and his relationship with his wife looks like. After all, Paul was not married himself and promoted singleness in 1 Corinthians 7. 
We see here that he must be the husband of one wife, a one-woman man who has a single-minded devotion to his one and only wife. He has an exclusive and faithful relationship to his wife, both physically, mentally, and certainly emotionally. He reserves his physical and his mental and his emotional relations for one woman. in actions, and even in thoughts. If a man cannot image Christ, because this is how Christ has reserved himself for his bride, the church, if a man cannot image Christ in laying down his life for his wife as Christ did for the church, then who is that man to think that he could serve as an elder in the church? He cannot imitate the chief shepherd in that if he's not faithful at home. Speaking to children... He says that the children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. This does not exclude men without children, nor does this address men with young children. This is simply saying that if a man has children, we need to look into his life and make certain, depending on their age and their accountability before God and before the Father, are they insubordinate or faithful in following the lead of their dad? This phrase, children are believers, is very debated in circles. Uh, The Greek word behind this word believers has two meanings. It can either mean believers or it can mean faithful. And it is used interchangeably throughout the New Testament. I think it best to understand this word to be translated faithful instead of believers. Children are faithful in following the leadership of their father why because i'm going to tell you this morning that no man can determine the salvation of his children and god cannot expect a man to save his children before he becomes an elder but the thing that a man can affect in a child believer or unbeliever is their behavior and their subordination their submission to his authority and his leadership so this is not a requirement that that leads to us to think that a man needs saved, believing children. We need to see obedient, orderly children who are not open to the charge of insubordination. I want to make a point here that children must obey their father's leadership, yes, and this absolutely must also include honoring and obeying their mothers. For this elder father, husband, is responsible for the whole household functioning with dignity towards the authority of parents and the blessing of children. We should, church, expect our elders to be above reproach in their home life. It's not negotiable. And we need to look first to a man's home to see if he's qualified to lead here at the church. Listen to what Paul says to Timothy in the parallel passage of this in 1 Timothy 3, starting in verse 4. Speaking of the elder, he must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? That's pretty ultimate. So home is first in the category of Qualifying a man for eldership. Let's look at the second category. He must be above reproach in his character. Here Paul gives us 11 character qualities. Let's cut them into two groups. First, there are five negative characteristics that an elder must avoid in his life. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent, or greedy for gain. Five negative traits that an elder must avoid. I want to ask you a question this morning. Which one of those, arrogant, quick-tempered, drunkard, violent, greedy, which one of those would you be willing to tolerate as a congregation? You want four out of five? Which one would you say, you know, we'll overlook that one and we'll tolerate that one? The answer is none of them. 
I don't need to unpack what each one of those means. They are very self-explanatory. We've experienced and tasted all of these in different circles in life, and sometimes even in the church. So, I want you to know this morning that we get this list of negative characteristics to avoid because there is nothing uglier, whether inside or outside of the church, than an unqualified man serving as an elder in Christ's congregation. So there are five negative characteristics that are prohibited to be named amongst elders. There's six then positive characteristics that must be embodied and practiced in the man. Verse 8, he must be hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. Don't those words fall on you gently and sweetly. You say, yes, I want those to be named about my pastor, my elder king. These all depict a true pastor because they are all evidenced in the chief shepherd, Jesus Christ. Each of these were on display in Christ's person and Christ's work from day one to day last on earth. I think it's a very good exercise for an elder every now and then to look at these positive character traits and try to name those traits being evidenced in the life of Christ. It's really good for a man to take his traits, these traits, and identify them specifically in Christ and then turn and say, okay, how can I imitate Christ and how perfect he was in embodying these traits? I played around with these words all the way back in Africa, looking at these words and how they're embodied in Jesus Christ. Long lists on some of them, shorter ones on others, but let me just give you one for each of these. In hospitality, I see hospitableness in our Christ because the word became flesh and dwelt among us. What a great act of hospitality for God to become one of us. Why? So that he could die for us. The pastor is to imitate Christ and lay his life down first for a wife and then for Christ's church. And so a pastor, an elder in the church must be hospitable like Christ was. How about a lover for good? We see in Hebrews that, that Jesus Christ, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame. He despised the shame of the cross because he loved the good of the cross, the purpose of the cross. He's a lover of good, even when it meant shameful things to be done to him. He was self-controlled and that after fasting for 40 days and 40 nights in the wilderness, the tempter came to him, Satan himself, and said, turn these stones into bread. And he said, man cannot live by bread alone, but by the word of God. He had self-control even in physically and emotionally weak moments. Our Christ was upright in the Garden of Gethsemane before he is going to be betrayed. He says to God the Father, not my will be done, but yours. He is upright. He's faithful. Oh, and he's holy. God the Father made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus Christ is sinless though he died on a cross in our place. He is holy, perfect and pure and unstained by any sin. And lastly, we see a Christ who was disciplined because as he hung on the cross, dying in your place for your sins, they mocked him from the ground and they said to him, if you are the son of God, come down from that cross and in his discipline, despising the shame of the cross, but loving the good of the cross, he remained hung for that wood. You could go on and on with each of these. An elder would be good to look for these traits in Christ and then pray that he could imitate Christ in the equivalent in our life here and now. But the elder needs to understand that he can embody these only if he is in Christ. He's got to have a personal relationship. He's got to be born again. 
through the resurrection and belief in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And only then can an elder begin to imitate Jesus in each of these positive character traits. It's easy to be imitated by the elder as he stewards God's elect. With these five negative and six positive traits, we need to note what Paul is primarily concerned with. He is not telling us to primarily look for the man with the best skills. We don't have a skill set here at all. We have a character set. He is first and foremost concerned about the man's character and integrity and heart. A skilled man with poor character will use his skills for selfish ends. And he will harm many in his day. A man with poor character will surely slide into profound failure when it comes to teaching the truth. Because you cannot have unbridled inconsistency between doctrine and character. They must be synchronized and they must be one. So the second group consists of 11 traits. Five that a man should not embody and six that the man should embody so that he can have a character that is above reproach. Number three, an elder must be above reproach in his doctrine. Now we start getting to a task that is assigned to an elder. Verse nine, he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. There's some few phrases here that merit just some brief comment. Hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught. Hold firm. There is effort in those words. Hold firm. Sound doctrine is not something that an elder just falls into. It doesn't just happen to him. He goes and grabs a hold of it and he hangs on to it with all of his life and he nurtures it and he grows in his understanding and his embracing of the trustworthy word that God has given. It is a trustworthy word. The elder has to understand that God will never let you down with his word. You cannot go wrong with the word of God, you can only go right with its proper embracing and teaching and application. The world wants pastors who buy into myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. But faithful elders must avoid foolish controversies, genealogies and dissensions and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless, Titus 3, 9 writes us. Once a man holds firm to this trustworthy word, now he's to do something with it. He's to do two things with it. First, he's to give instruction in sound doctrine. He's to give instruction. This is how a man feeds the flock. This is a provision role that the elder must play. It's, he must do so with sound doctrine. Sound means healthy. And the concept is there in verse 13 of Titus 1. Sound doctrine builds sound faith. And if you have those two, you will have a sound church. A church in order. Because it all started with right doctrine. And then the second thing the man is to do is he holds firm to this trustworthy word of God. He's to rebuke those who contradict it. So he's to provide it in teaching. And he's to protect in rebuking. Paul gets really aggressive here on this issue. We've got phrases like, such people must be silenced. They must be rebuked sharply, he says in verses 10 through 16. Very aggressive language. Far more aggressive than on the teaching side. And Paul urges this role of protection amongst the teaching elder because... Verses 10 through 16 reveal some ugly things to us about the churches in Crete. 
amongst those churches, there are many insubordinate, empty-talking deceivers, Paul says. There are those who teach for shameful gain. There are those whose minds and consciences are defiled. There are those who deny God by their works. There are those who are detestable and disobedient and unfit for any good work. And Paul reserves this extreme language for people who are false teachers. Not people with quirky personalities. People who are falsely proclaiming something to be the word of God that is not. People who are not holding firm to the trustworthy word, but they are twisting it and tweaking it for shameful gain. And these people are in the church, not the culture. So Paul says, hold firm to this word, give instruction in sound doctrine, and protect the flock from those who pervert it. There's what an elder does. It's the only job task that's given to us. Same way in Titus, uh, 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 7. This is a very common problem. It's true in our age. It's true in the, on the island of Crete 2,000 years ago. It was true in Ephesus back in those days as well. Listen to what Paul says to the elders in Ephesus in Acts chapter 20, starting in verse 28. Paul says to these men, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God which he obtained with his own blood. So there's stewardship right there. This is God's church. He bought this church with the blood of Jesus Christ. It is his. But you are to care for this place. And he goes on to say, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. This is not the culture attacking the church. These men come from among their own selves. They will arise from within the church and they will try to speak twisted things with the goal of drawing away the disciples after them. And Paul would say through this letter to Titus, such people are to be rebuked sharply and silenced. Why? Because the saints, the disciples, must not be drawn away after these people. John Calvin, in commenting on Titus 1.9, said this, The elder ought to have two voices. One for gathering the sheep, and another for warding off and driving away wolves and thieves. There you have it. The elders, one task. So you've got all of these character qualities that must be embodied in the men. But the, one, the elders, one task requires two voices. That gentle voice that feeds the flock the word of God. And that strong voice that fends off and wards away thieves, wolves, and robbers who would love to steal disciples. This is the third grouping. An elder must be able to protect and provide the flock with only the trustworthy word that he holds tight. Well, I'm going to ask now for our elder team to come down to the front and sit on this front row, and I want Jeff to move over and sit right in that middle chair. The other four men would flank him on both sides. We need to set this man apart and celebrate what God has done in providing him to our church. Before I do this, I want to issue a charge to all of us. I've got two charges here that we all in this room need to hear from our unique vantage point. The first charge is this. There is a charge to elders. Yes, a body of elders, and yes, a man who is coming on. The charge is this, 1 Timothy 
Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. That's the role, that's the charge, that's the responsibility that God gives the men that he raises up to shepherd the flock. Jeff, this morning you are coming to join a team of men and your character and your teaching amongst this body of leaders matters highly. You cannot teach one way and act another way. They must be synchronized, and you must keep a close watch on your actions and on your teachings, and they must be parallel to one another. This, in so doing, assures your salvation, and it equips you and enables you to fulfill what God is entrusting in you, and that is the influencing of the salvation of this flock. You do not save them, but you do influence the salvation, new salvation and enduring salvation amongst the flock, and you do so by the way you handle the word of God in teaching and in rebuking those that contradict it. So this is the charge to the elders. And I really love how God serves us so well with his word. For you see, over and over again, whether it's parent-child relations, employer-employee relations, here in this text we're dealing with elders and congregation relations. God, in his great sovereign care for his elect, gives two complementary charges. He points us at one another. He points elders to the congregation and the congregation back to elders, and he tells us how we are to relate to one another. There's no mystery here. So the first charge to the elders is, you keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching, and you persist in this, because yours and the congregation's salvation is at stake. Well, then now let's look at the charge that God gives the congregation, the members of the church. It's in Hebrews 13, 7 and 17. Listen to these words. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. What a good God to point elders and members toward one another and to give these simple but big-time instructions to each party. Church, your submission to, your obedience toward, your imitation of your elders matters immensely so long as they are faithful in imitating Christ themselves. It matters that you imitate the faith of these men. You must submit to them. You must encourage them. It says here you need to let them lead you with joy. You need to do this regularly. And to do otherwise, Paul says, to, to cause them to groan is of no advantage to you. All are harmed in suffering. And so... Elders keep a close watch on themselves in the teaching, and the congregation considers the outcome of their way and imitates them and obeys them and submits to them and lets them do it with joy. These are the instructions God gives to us as we today acknowledge the leadership that he has established in this church. If we all play our God-given roles faithfully in these instructions, we will fulfill God's purpose for us. And his purpose is very clear. 1 Timothy 3, 14 and 15. It's very clear. We are to be the household of God. We are to be the church of the living God. We are to be a pillar and a buttress of the truth. And that truth is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Crucified, buried, resurrected in our place. And if we do this, we will fulfill our greater missional purpose. Because if we live unified like this, elder to congregation, congregation to elder, the world will look upon us 
and as Jesus prayed for in John 17, 21, that they would see and that they would believe that God the Father sent God the Son to bring salvation to all who would believe. That's what's at stake when we relate to one another as elders and congregants. Well, Scripture doesn't give us specific instructions for how to ordain an elder. There's no ordination service in here that we go verse by verse through. We've left it to be a very unique act of worship that's custom to every congregation that ever was. We do get one specific instruction, though. In 1 Timothy 5, 22 and following, we hear this. We're told amongst these qualifications, yes, we need to look for these, but here's another thing that we're told. We are told to not be hasty in the laying on of hands. We don't do this quickly with a man. Nor are we to take part in the sins of others. We are to keep ourselves pure. And then he says this, the sins of some people are conspicuous or hidden, going before them to judgment. But the sins of others appear later. So also good works are conspicuous. And even those that are not cannot remain hidden. So scripture here in these verses instructs us to be slow to lay hands on, to ordain a man into pastoral ministry. Don't run to this too quickly, is what he's saying. We are to test a man, and we are to see a man's character over time. We need to see how a man does in peacetime and in times of plenty and prosperity. And we are to see a man who and how he functions during trials and tribulations. And over that time, his sins will be surfaced as well as his good works will be surfaced and we will know and discern rightly who such a man is through the testimony of people in Jeff's life and our own experience with him here at Rocky Point Baptist Church this morning we the elders and the congregation come together to say that we believe Jeff Dyke to be properly tested and ready for ordination. I want you to know that we don't do this alone in a vacuum as Rocky Point Baptist Church. I want you to know that we stand on the shoulders of at least two other churches, Highview Baptist Church in Louisville, Kentucky, and Christ Baptist Church in Cold Spring, Kentucky. Both of these places, Jeff has served as a pastor. And those two churches came together a year, almost two years ago, and licensed this man into ministry. Today we ordain a man, and we'll talk about the difference of those at another time. But we have two churches in this man's past that join us, a third church, in saying we see the marks of biblical eldership on this man, Jeff Dyke. And I'm thankful that we stand on the shoulders of two other churches in making this ultimate and final ordination decision. And so with that, I'm going to invite Jeff to stand before me and the congregation. And we're going to walk through some pledges and promises that we're going to ask you to make before God and before us now and for all time. Jeffrey Ethan Dyke having repented of your sins against the Holy God, having embraced the substitutionary atonement for your sins by Jesus Christ, and through a profession of faith in and willful submission to Him alone, having been baptized as a believer, having prayed and studied and read and grown in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, having demonstrated faithful service in Christ's church in various pastoral roles during the last five years, and specifically for the last 14 months in this church, having aspired to the office of elder, and having been approved and affirmed to that office after careful examination by the elders and members of Rocky Point Baptist Church, do you this day promise to these ten statements that I'm about to make? Do you this day promise to shepherd the flock of God that has been entrusted to you willingly, eagerly, seeking to model first what you ask of them, 
You promise to guard the church as a blood-brought possession of Jesus Christ and thus to care for her as his most valuable possession, to joyfully watch over the souls of this flock as one who will one day give an account to God for each of them? If so, would you answer, I do. Do you promise this day to preach the word of God in season and out of season, reproving, rebuking, and exhorting with complete patience and teaching to address men's hearts as well as their minds, to always preach and teach with the day of God's strict judgment for teachers in mind, to correct the ungodly with gentleness, not quarrelsomeness, to value the word of God over an argument one, to preach repentance and faith in Christ alone, to be a man of God who handles the word of truth accurately. If so, would you answer, I do. Do you promise this day to guard the sacred deposit entrusted to your care, to not be ashamed of the gospel of the Savior Jesus Christ, regardless of the audience, to resist every temptation to shrink back from declaring the whole gospel, whether in the privacy of someone's home or in the public square, to value Christ above your wife, your children, your church, your ministry, your knowledge, yourself, and anything else in this world? If so, will you answer, I do. Do you promise this day to keep close watch on your own life and your own doctrine, to train yourself in godliness, to flee youthful sins, to seek to be a man of the word and prayer, zealous to continue growing in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, to live a godly life in private and public, to be swift when you fail to repent and seek both forgiveness and reconciliation with God and man as soon as possible, and to be equally swift when personally wronged to forgive and reconcile with the one who has sinned against you. If so, will you answer, I do. Do you pledge this day to labor and strive with persistence in the work of your ministry, giving God all the glory for any success to humbly call others to follow your personal growth in godliness and sanctification as you have followed Christ, to entrust your soul to the faithful Creator, no matter the blessing, no matter the trial, no matter the persecution, to serve the Lord with both joy and tears, and to willingly accept suffering should God place you in a position where obedience requires it, and to value the calling and gospel of Jesus Christ even above your own life? If so, will you answer, I do. Will you pledge this day to be a model of good management and spiritual leadership in your home? To love and serve your wife, Alyssa, as Christ loves and serves the church? To seek in partnership with Alyssa to love, nurture, and discipline your children, who include Selah right now? To bring your children up to love God and obey His commands with all their hearts? If so, would you answer, I do. Will you pledge today to live a life free from any form of sexual immorality in mind or act with no questionable connections or relationships, taking whatever steps necessary to avoid even the appearance of evil in any situation that might dishonor the name you bear as a Christian and the integrity of the office that you hold as a minister of the gospel? If so, will you answer, I do. Will you live a life modestly? Will you have a modest lifestyle that is free from burdensome debt and within the limits of your income to apply the highest ethical standards, namely God's standards, in all of your business dealings? Do you, will you despise the allure of riches in this world and live for the eternal wealth of Christ's presence in heaven? If so, answer, I do. Will you this day pledge to work in harmony with church leadership and other staff to preserve unity in the body of Christ, striving to be a continual source of encouragement with an attitude of honesty, openness, support, and cooperation to maintain strict confidentiality when handling counseling and dis discipline cases, to only share information learned from these private interviews when it is deemed necessary for the physical or spiritual, spiritual welfare of another. If so, will you answer, I do. Finally, brothers, should you discern that you are unqualified to serve in the role of elder according to the requirements outlined in 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 7, Titus 1, 5 through 9, and 1 Peter 5, 2 through 4, will you this day promise 
to voluntarily approach the elder body of this church or any church God may entrust to you in the future with a willingness to be transparent in discussing your status and your fitness for serving in the office of elder? If so, will you answer, I do. Amen. I would ask now for the congregation to stand with our elders, dear members of Rocky Point Baptist Church. Do you this day make these five commitments? Do you this day commit to obey this man and submit to him along with the other elders? Remembering that he is keeping watch over your souls as one who will have to give an account. Will you let him do this with joy and not with groaning, understanding that to do otherwise would be no advantage to you? If so, congregation, would you answer in unison, we do. Do you this day commit to encourage and support this man and his family spiritually, emotionally, physically, and financially? If so, will you respond by saying, we do. Do you this day pledge to pray for this man's humility, that he would always remember that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble? If so, will you respond with, we do. Will you pledge this day to pray for this man's teaching ministry, that he will not ever be ashamed of the gospel, that he will finish his course in the ministry that he has received from the Lord Jesus Christ, that he will remain sober-minded and watchful, and that he will resist the devil, always firm in his faith? If so, will you respond by saying, we do? Dear brother, because we believe that the Holy Spirit has gifted you to this ministry and has provided you as a gift to his church and any gospel-centered church he should ever entrust to you in the future. And because we trust that we have not acted in haste, but in prayerful dependence on the Lord, in affirming your calling as an elder in Christ's church, therefore it is our joy as the elders of this church to lay hands on you and to call upon God himself to seal to you this Christ-centered ministry for His eternal glory. What a blessing it is. I would ask the congregation to now sit as we the elders will lay hands on this brother and commission him to this service of the Lord. Church, I would ask you to uh, join the call to prayer as we look over these scriptures that we've read this morning and as we pray. Father, this morning as we come before you, Lord, there have been many things said that suggest the time live up to. Impossible for a man to do on his own. power of the Holy Spirit and his dependency on you, Lord, we will be able to accomplish these things. And Father, there is one that has massive implications in his life and in his church, and that is that he is beyond reproach. Father, I pray that his trustworthiness, his honesty, Lord, will never do what it was required him to say. So that it never blemishes the gospel or the church that you've called us to. Father, as he leads his wife, Alyssa, Father, may his eyes and his ears and his desires be for her and her alone as he leads her 
you drive a little fast, you know, the Apostle Paul taught the driving that to be feasible means to die. And Lord Benny Terrence, that he as a father and leader and pastor of theirs as they're raised Caleb, Father, we ask, Lord, that you would help her to follow his leadership. Little as she is now, Lord, one day she may actually look at him as a toddler and think that he's God because he is her father. He is her daddy. Lord, may you help him to depend on you as a teacher of how to raise her. Lord, as she is to point her to the one true God and Savior and all in her son Christ Jesus. And I say I know God. In Christ's name. God, as you continue to lay his hands on Jeff and his ministry, Lord, Lord, it's it's already prayed that that an elder to be above reproach, Lord, that as Richard taught this morning, quick to repent, quick to reconcile. Lord, we are called to an elder to be an overseer, a manager of something that does not belong to us, Lord. Lord, there is nothing on this earth that's more precious than the bride of Christ. Lord, that is that is the one thing that you gave your son for. It's the one thing that you gave us to manage, Lord, here as overseers. Lord, I pray that Jeff's ministry. He never loses sight of that, Lord, that every action that he takes, Lord, he realizes that there's a an effect on a church, on a people that he is leading. Lord, I pray that you protect him in that sense, Lord. I pray that you give him discernment as he leads. There's five things here that have been listed as as things that that are negatives, Lord, that arrogance and quick-temperedness and drunkenness and violence and greed, Lord. These are are all things that we should be, be watchful over, Lord, but these are things that we have we absolutely have not uh, seen in the in the ministry of Jeff here at this this congregation, Lord. While we're here this morning, Lord, as we as we look at arrogance, Lord, the we have to be humble in our leadership, Lord. But we have to be bold in our biblical defense, Lord. And and there's a there's a balance there to be personally humble and biblically bold. And Lord, I pray that Jeff continues in, down that track, Lord. Lord, we we are pressured in many ways, and Lord, I pray that that we can continue to be even-tempered, Lord, slow to become angry, Lord. Lord, as as, as in this life, as we have different things that that catch our attention, Lord, that we not be uh, controlled by any of them. The scriptures speak of, of being a drunkard, Lord, but Lord, anything can consume our life, Lord, and, and cloud our judgment. Lord, I pray that, that you protect us from those, no matter how culturally serious or insignificant they may be, Lord, that we keep our focus there. Let us be gentle. And Lord, as a church, Lord, as any congregation, Lord, I pray that we continue to always meet the needs of our pastors, Lord, such that that livelihood and things of that such, Lord, will, will never have an influence on our on our ministry, Lord. And I 
complete protection over Jeff and Alyssa as they move forward in the ministry, Lord, that they can stay focused. Lord, I thank you for, for them and for the opportunity to be part of the Lord mission this morning. In Jesus' name. Father, we see qualifications in a man today. There is a grace to be earned. I would pray that as we've seen qualifications, that they would remain in Jeff, hospitable man that has loved the stranger because we were once enemies and strangers, but he reconciled with ours. A lover of everything good, his good and perfect gift that is from the Father above, that he would remain a man that loves good, self-controlled, not chaotic and out of order, but rather imaging his maker in self-control and order, upright, lurking in the shadows and Specifically pray for Jeff's teaching ministry. Father, I acknowledge here today that you've you've blessed this church with a man who rightly handles your word, has a strong conviction to teach it to others and to study it for himself. Father, he sees it as of equipping the saints and that they would do what they're to do in ministry. Father, he sees that your word is a light to his path. He sees that your word is transforming and changes us. And I pray that he would be dedicated to study. He would be dedicated to rightly know your word and have an understanding of sound doctrine and that he won't be drug away by uh, all of the things that would come up against your word in this world. Some things that sound very logical, but Father, are not your word. I pray that he would have a strong conviction to stay grounded throughout his life. Father, we do today celebrate you and your son, Jesus Christ, in the recognition of a man that you have provided, you have raised up. We are only acknowledging this morning the fruits of your work in this man's life. We thank you that he trusted Christ, the substitute for him on a cross not a dead Christ, a resurrected Christ. We thank you for those that you put in his life to bring this good news to him, namely his faithful mother and father. Thank you for the churches that you have used to nurture a young Jeff Dyson into the man of God that he is today. Pastors, yes, church members, certainly. We thank you for the theological training that he has received and the endeavor that he partook in and undertook in grabbing your trustworthy word and pounding on it and asking
and you need to give him your strength. I thank you that you've blessed me with a faithful wife, and Elizabeth, who steadfastly stands beside him, and better than that, who compliments him and completes him and fits him in your serviceable staff that you've given me. And we thank you that you've entrusted Liz later. thank you now that you've brought him to pastor. Father, it's my prayer that this man would shepherd your flock that is amongst us and that he would exercise oversight not under compulsion but willingly as you would have him to do. I pray that he would never be never succumb to the temptation of leading for shameful gain but that he would always be eager that he'd never domineer over those in his charge, but he would be an example to this church. And we pray that in so doing, that day when Jesus Christ appears, the chief shepherd, we pray that he will rejoice in Jeff's faithful service and that Jeff will receive the promised unfading crown of glory. In the meantime, Father, we ask that you would always lead Jeff to be sober-minded and to be watchful to be alert that there is an adversary, the devil, who prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone, seeking a, a pastor, an elder to devour. We pray that through his holding fast to the trustworthy word he's taught, he would be able to resist and remain firm in his faith. We acknowledge you, God, this morning fruits of your work in the life of one, and we give you all praise and glory for this, and we pray this in the strong name of our Savior, Jesus Christ, amen. So 14 months ago, we as a congregation extended an invitation to Jeff and Alyssa. <laughs> Sailor was coming, but she wasn't here yet. And it's been a tremendous 14 months. We called a man who met all of these qualifications. He did not mature into these in the last 14 months. He met these before he came. But we weren't hasty in laying on of hands. And we wanted to observe as a congregation. And we have seen not a perfect man, but a repentance man. A man after Christ. And so it has been a delight this morning to worship with you around such a glorious occasion as this, acknowledging God's work in the life of this man. I would like to close us with a benediction. If you would all stand with me, I'll read from Hebrews 13, a closing word, and then we will be dismissed. We invite you to come down and greet Jeff and Alyssa and Jeff's parents, Jerry and Kathy. And we look forward to a good evening with you tonight as Jeff will lead us in talking about all things that we did in Africa back in September. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen.